So once more, I'd like to request your kind uh, attention for some thoughts. Um, we've been exercising what we kind of somewhat casually call the mind. And um, as you're probably aware, this is, a, this is quite a rubbery term, mind. And uh, as we spend more time with that mind, we find out there's actually several of them in there. And um, it's quite, uh, in fact, the place is teeming with people who say, me. Yeah? So we have people who say, you should lose weight. And then we say, well, but there's these chocolates in the fridge. And then we have the same voice saying, well, actually, you know, he who doesn't enjoy becomes joyless. <laughs> and then we say, well, that was the Buddha, wasn't it? Or was it somebody else, you know? And then we say, fair enough, let's go and eat that chocolate. And then the same voice says, uh, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. Yeah. <laughs> so, there seems to be quite a few people in there who all use the same voice. And, you know, I think of sock puppets sometimes. I have sort of Akinjano sock puppets, which kind of pipe up sometimes with predictable, sometimes with completely novel uh, messages. So I thought of spending some time at looking at the, the Buddhist, early Buddhist psychological conceptualization of, um, of that zoo in there, basically. You know? The zoo is called Chitta. And the Chitta is a Already here it gets difficult. Is it a place? Is it a process? Is it a structure? Um, hard to say. The citta is the intuited heart of our experience. Yeah? It's literally at the heart of our experience. The citta is where we go to when we are asked, how are you doing? In uh, Buddhist, early, particularly early Buddhist psychology, this is not split. So. The, what we would call intellect, uh, with its cognitive functions, and what we would call the heart, uh, with its affective world, emotional world, is both meant by the citta. So the citta uh, is something that does not yet recognize a split between the affective and the cognitive and the conative, the will functions. Yeah. Uh, Buddhist traditions have a somewhat ambivalent relationship to that term. In the very earliest discourses, the Buddha blatantly refused to define the term. So you find uh, he is, that this term is sometimes identified with other terms. One of them is vijnana, consciousness, and one of them is mano, uh, mentality. Uh, often these terms are used synonymously if we look closely, we can discern different usages. So, vijnana is often used when the Buddha speaks analytically. So, when he speaks of a particularizing awareness that is based on our sensory functioning. So, when the Buddha speaks of the six sense fields, then he generally speaks of uh, vijnana. So consciousness dependent on eye, dependent on ear, dependent on nose, on tongue, on body, on mind. So in this case, he would use the term vijnana. So the particularizing uh, relationship to the sense basis, uh, he uses generally the term vijnana. The term mano is again used differently. It is, has to do with the mind as the coordinating uh, the crossroads where our, our other sense functions are being coordinated. It is uh, the sense base for intellection. It is the sense base um, for any mental phenomena called Dhamma. So this is the, the job of 
Mano, the mind as mano, is basically the, the cognitive uh, function, the coordination of mental phenomena, um, and it's also a special class, uh, basically, of um, distinguishing the internal and the external phenomena of our experience. The term citta, the Buddha always uses when he speaks of something that is non-analytical. The citta is what we are encouraged to grow, to develop, to purify, to stabilize, um, to make big, to make abundant. So whenever he speaks about meditation, he generally uses the term citta. So the citta is what we're uh, encouraged to cultivate. The citta is what we're encouraged to unify. The citta is what we're encouraged to stabilize. The citta is what we're encouraged to, to make big, yeah? to let become abundant, as uh, Yuka has explained today, when the Brahma-viharas are uh, strengthened by deep stillness, then they become immeasurable, they become apamanya. So, we have a term that is... The citta is not just nice, okay? So if we're looking at some of the uses of the citta, I want to give you a few keywords. The citta uh, can be quite capricious. So um, the citta is, is described in a number of ways. Yeah? It is, uh, you know, maybe most importantly, it is described as inherently luminous. The citta is, uh, in a famous passage in the Anguttara Nikaya, it is described as radiant. Yeah. And if it is troubled, the troubles it gets, these troubles are only uh, adventitious. They're not inherent. So that's an important, you know, that's an important baseline on Buddhist teaching. Buddhists have been blamed for being pessimists and obsessed with suffering. Yeah. So, you know, all this harping around on dukkha, you know, all this insistence that basically life is impermanent and th things are crumbling away from us. And that this is all true, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is all true, you know. You've got tons of um, um, sad poetry about impermanence, the poignancy of... A, uh, in Japanese, you actually have wonderful terms, the, the, the inherent... Heart-rendering heart nature of all things. You know, the famous mono no avare, which is something that in all things is pain, in all things is loss. Even in the most beautiful thing, you see um, mortality. Yeah. But that's not that's not all of it. So the citta, on the background of the citta being radiant and luminous, Buddhists have always insisted that dukkha is not actually necessary. Yeah. Truth be told, this is a bit more complicated. You have a dukkha that has to do with the four truths, and you have a dukkha that has to do with the three lakanas. So the dukkha of the three characteristics of the universe, you don't really get rid of, okay? Even the Buddha had back pain and died of bloody dysentery at the end of his days, and it wasn't nice. Yeah? Um, so that's the bad news, that's the really bad news, that even if you do everything right, you will still end up with back pain and you're going to die. Yeah? <laughs> Let's get that straight out. Yeah? Let's not be pretend, don't pretend that, uh, that this is any different. Yeah? But the good news is, there is a dukkha, particularly the dukkha that the, the four tasks speak of, the, four, the Arya Satcha. And the dukkha in there, as remember, that's the first of the uh, realities we uh, are not just asked to cope with, but actually to reconcile with. The dukkha in there is something that can be brought to cessation. The dukkha in there is something that, is, that can be given up by understanding what brings it about and by removing the causes that bring about dukkha. So, most of our dukkha is that sort of dukkha. Then there, some back pain remains, and you know, we're gonna die. You know, we're not gonna survive this. Um, so, all of this harping on on dukkha actually takes place on the background that we can be happy, that we can be free, 
that we can be awake, that the chitta is capable of intuiting our freedom, that, that the chitta is capable of healing, it is capable of waking up, it is capable of being totally uh, expansive, it is capable of being intuitive and discerning, it is capable of understanding, most importantly, the principles that underpin happiness and obviously if you're interested in happiness you must be interested in its opposite suffering and all the insistent on buddhists trying to understand and uh, allay suffering has to do with an acknowledgement that we're capable of intrinsic happiness yeah so that's an important piece that some of the early translators haven't quite grasped when they found out that buddhists are all about suffering yes because they think suffering is not mandatory. Yeah. So let us see what uh, is the chitta is described as. So luminous, the chitta is not um, immutable. It's not a nucleus. It's not an essential core. Yeah. The chitta is a process. It is multifaceted. It is a dynamic pattern, and in that dynamic pattern, it is both generative so it produces things and it is resonant it picks up things um, if we go a little bit into more detail um, we one of the one of the features of that uh, chitta is it is highly changeable uh, indeed quote it is not easy to give a simile for how quickly the mind changes yeah. uh, the chitta may be malleable so it is workable it may be pliable it is soft, it, is, it may be mahagata, it may be lofty, it may be abundant, vipula, it may be immeasurable, yeah? particularly when it is still and unified, it becomes big. Unfortunately, it also can be shrunken, it can contract, and it can be reactive, it can be scared, it can be obscured by defilements, um, sometimes it turns into the proverbial monkey mind. That's a, by the way, that's a Pali term. Monkey mind is uh, is found in the Pali canon. You know, it's called kapijitang. So if your mind behaves like a monkey, it uh, actually is on safe canonical ground. You know, it's, it's not that it's recommended, but you can rest assured that people for the last uh, two and a half millennia have already had this experience. You're not alone. Yeah. Sometimes uh, the chitta has a mind of its own. Yeah? There is this wonderful little phrase where it says, the practitioner makes his chitta turn according to his or her wish. He or she does not turn by the chitta's wish. Yeah? Uh, the chitta can be pleased or displeased. Uh, there's a passage which says, that person does not appeal to my chitta. Or somebody rather self-confidently at some point concludes, your chitta was pleased with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the chitta can be tamed, danta, or it can be unshakable, akupa. Uh, the chitta is capable of recognizing its own good, the good of others, and the common good. That's an interesting one, isn't it? The chitta, this is maybe most important, is uh, if refined and stabilized and trained it is capable of understand of understanding how things truly have become in other words it is capable of understanding how we have arrived at a particular condition that means if this is a desirable condition we are able to repeat it or to strengthen it and if this is an undesirable condition we are able to gradually be uh, to gradually undo the precursor for this condition or the you know what it is predicated upon that's from a buddhist point of view that's one of the crucial functions of the chitta it is capable of understanding i said the other day in a somewhat, somewhat uh, not terribly doctrinal sophisticated way um, that the chitta has three functions one of them is you know foundational sensitivity, receiving sense impressions, then processing sense impressions and producing sankharas, producing uh, will functions. That generally translates as like, dislike, aversion, 
um, compassion, joy, serenity. You know, those would be how we respond to the world. And finally, on a third level, the citta is concerned with uh, understanding. And it so happens that the more it is preoccupied with the former two, the less resources it has to allocate to this third function of understanding. Hence, meditation practice. You know, calming down the body, calming down the mind, slowing down the body, slowing down the mind, and beginning to brighten the mind and then beginning to still stabilize the mind so that it becomes more capable of connecting in an intuitive way with the world of its experience. Uh, there's some pieces in there. One of the pieces in there uh, is obviously this is the process in Buddhist understanding that leads through cultivation of mind, through citta bhavana, this is what you've been doing for a week, to liberation. Yeah? So what helps the heart, the mind to become liberated is the cultivation of the, of the citta's capacity to understand. It is um, not control that makes us free, it is not willpower, uh, it is not um, attrition, but it is the capacity of the mind to understand that this impulse is not a helpful impulse. That impulse is a more promising impulse to be followed. So, um, Buddhist teaching basically thinks there are two problems. One of them is bad habits and one of them is lack of understanding. Differing Buddhist schools have been not quite on the same page as to which one is worse. You know? So the, the one school thinking that bad, bad habits are the problem basically suggests a very gradual approach. So you create better conditions to have better understanding, to then create um, better qualities of the citta which will then uh, improve and become free. Yeah? The other uh, schools of Buddhism have more emphasized a foundational waking up experience is necessary and then you open your eyes of unwisdom and you know you wake up from the slumber of ignorance and by clearing clearly you don't need to worry about the bad habits because when you see clearly you will not engage in bad habits because you have understood them to be bad habits. Yeah? Um, the truth is both are true, you know, these are metaphors for growth and like all metaphors they don't quite map the actual ter terrain, you know, like many, many good maps they, they start losing accuracy when you kind of go really into the terrain. They look really convincing and plausible as long as you're looking from a distance but once you're in the midst of it, yeah, once you're uh, you know, once you're in the weeds, basically your map doesn't necessarily match anymore. Well, if I understand that correctly, and that has had some, there's some story in Buddhist history where these two different schools have argued with each other. Buddhists love argument, so they've always uh, been happily arguing for centuries with each other. The, the nice thing about this is that they generally haven't killed themselves in the process, uh, which, makes me, uh, which makes me more fond of Buddhist arguments, because they often have shared uh, of monasteries, for that matter. Uh, over the centuries, they've basically agreed, you know, there's, a, there's a gradual path and there is a sudden path. You know? path is about sudden awakening or gradual awakening. So the one school has said, look, you've got to do this first and that first and that first and that first and then you get that and from there you go to there and then finally it gets better. Yeah, You're coming out of the woods. And the other school said, well, you know, it doesn't really work like that. Um, you can't really make mirrors by polishing tiles, okay? However much gradually you polish your tile, you're never going to turn this into a mirror. So these big metaphors, and these metaphors have to do with time, they have to do with space, they have to do with how to create conditions and how to respond to conditions. And 
Um, there was a big debate somewhere in Tibet in the 7th century, which apparently the gradualists have won, but we don't know because those were the guys who wrote the history. So it's possible that things weren't quite, you know, history is always written by the guys who win. So you never quite know how they really won. Um, there's two big metaphors. One metaphor is the metaphor of the lotus. The lotus has its roots in, this, in the dirt, in the ground, and then grows through muddy water up to the surface and finally into the sunlight and opens its petals that are pure and beautiful and unblemished. Yeah? So that's the classic metaphor for, for the gradual path. From the most humble beginnings we grow up, grow through the muddy water and open a, up into pristine purity. Yeah? And you can't see when you see the pristine petals of the open lotus, you, you don't see its humble origins. Yeah? So that's, that's one kind of metaphor, one kind of image, which I think has a lot to say uh, uh, about very hands-on ways the chitta can be cultivated. The other metaphor works a little different. It says, you know, when you switch on the light, darkness doesn't disappear gradually. It, you know, it doesn't kind of hide in the corners and you've got to scare it out well, piece by piece. You know, you switch on the light and darkness is gone immediately. You know, this is a sudden process. If you stand in front of the mirror, however fast you jump in front of the mirror, your image doesn't gradually assemble, you know, in the, in the course of the next two minutes, you're there. You know, however fast you jump, your image is going to be there, you know, unless you jump faster than the speed of light, which I suspect not so easy. Yeah. So this image says, if you understand something, then that process of understanding is irreversible. You cannot, you cannot move back from that understanding, and it's sudden. Yeah. If you are afraid of snakes and you uh, are in the dark walking through the forest and you see something that looks like a snake and you turn on your torch and then you see it's either a root or a, the famous uh, piece of rope that we find so often in Indian philosophy, then your fear goes away suddenly. It doesn't go away gradually because you realize this is not a snake. This is a rope or a root. Yeah? So you don't need gradual self-soothing techniques. You don't need therapy for that experience. You, know? you realize, ah, oh, God, I was wrong. You know, just because I was afraid of snakes doesn't mean there are snakes wherever I look. Um, it just means I have more fear. But actually, I have recognized now this is not a snake and my fear is gone. So both of these images have some power. And both of them have to do with the nature of the chitta. So the capacity of the chitta to suddenly understand has been clear to all of the traditions. Say, so what can happen to that chitta? What is it that makes the chitta capricious? Um, later Buddhist tradition has basically distilled the many hindrances. You've heard of some of the hindrances we've spoken of last week. Um, you know, desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and agitation and doubt. There's, in fact, many more hindrances. Uh, there's longer lists than those. We haven't given you the worst yet. Um, but later tradition has boiled all these hindrances down into two. One of them is Kleshavarana, uh, the hindrance of bad habits, particularly emotional habits. So these are things like... Um, envy and jealousy, uh, greed, um, anger, such like. And the other one is the Jnaya Navarana, which means the, the, the deficiency of understanding. We're lacking understanding. And both of these are basically inhabiting the citta. So the citta, theoretically capable of lofty intuitions, of great, profound, trenchant, uh, wisdom is also unfortunately uh, easily seduced. It is seduced by 
beliefs, it is seduced by desires and aversions, it is seduced by laziness, um, and it come it can it can malfunction. You know, like anything that is delicate, it needs training, it needs educating, it needs encouragement, it needs looking after. In other words, it needs bhavana, it needs meditation. That's the basic premise of Buddhist teaching. You know, you're not pure when you get born. The Buddha was very clear. While little kids may be charming and innocent, they're not enlightened. Yeah. So this kind of awakening process entails a lot of investment. And this is, I think, his big project, namely to create conditions for men and women who are willing to do the work of mind cultivation. What are some some things that we, we haven't spoken of yet which are difficult for the mind? One of them has to do with uh, something Buddhist or in fact Indian tradition calls Indriya. Indriya uh, is a word that refers to sense faculties. You know, there, are, there are three distinct uses of this in Buddhist teaching, but the primary one is about sense faculties. So our Indriyas are... Um, what happens to our senses. Now, it's an interesting choice of name. Indra, as many of you will know, is a, an Indian god, a creator deity. In fact, it's a, it's a fairly sort of blokish dude. Yeah? It's kind of a, on the macho side, definitely. He's, he's a doer. He's a maker. If you want to pigeonhole him in anthropological terms, he's kind of in the sort of league of Zeus with the Greeks and maybe Thor with, say, the Germanic. So these are all fairly sort of muscular guys. They, they are, are definitely self-willed. They all have something to do with weather. Yeah. <laughs> Zeus has a blackened fist from throwing lightning and uh, Thor has his hammer to create uh, thunder. And Indra has the Vajra, the thunderbolt. So he too is to be reckoned with uh, in meteorological terms to to say the you know to be polite. So Indra is basically a power. He is an authority. He is a force. And Buddhist conception of our senses makes use of this imagery of Indra as a force, as an authority that does things with us that make us do things. Yeah? So our senses in many ways are like an occupant force that make us do things. Yeah? Because of our senses, we are being propelled, we are developing needs, we are, um, we are looking for gratification, we are trying to avoid pain. Because of these senses operate, we, we are made to do things without having much say in it. Yeah. So uh, the premise on Indriya, on, uh, they exert a power, an authority over us with which we need to somehow negotiate. We cannot just allow that this force occupies us and subdues us. So the senses are troubling the citta. The senses are taking or... or using energy that the citta has at its disposition. Yeah. Remember that first two layers, the sensory processing of information, the resonant part of the citta, and then the responsive part of the citta. This, is all, this has all to do with our sense functioning. Buddhists also use the term indriya with positive connotation when they speak of the spiritual faculties. Yeah. In this case, the authority that comes from the spiritual faculty is a welcome one. So, confidence or trust, uh, uh, energy, mindfulness, stillness, wisdom. Yeah? These are the, the only places, basically, that authority comes from. So, these two are called the Indriyas. So, we have two, one, two terms, or one term that covers two different fields. In both cases, the term authority is involved. In one case, authority is quasi on our good side. Yeah? We gain authority by these five spiritual faculties. In the other usage, the senses are 
uh, almost like an occupant force that we need to work and negotiate with. So one of the things that can trouble the citta is that it is under the sway of the indriyas. And the Buddha th- is very clear that we need training in this. We need training in how we manage our sensory nature. If we just follow that sensory nature, we we will not develop the potential of the citta. So the idea of just being natural doesn't work according to Buddhist psychology. It takes a lot of maturity to handle one's, acknowledge one's sensuality, at the same time acknowledge also the limits, the dangers that go together with sensuality. We can easily become addicted, we can easily become anxious, we can easily become uh, weary, we can easily become accustomed to comforts and then sacrifice much of our energy and much of our freedom to these senses. So the Buddha, like any other world religion, has understood that there is some power in these senses and that power needs to somehow be harnessed. We can't say we're not sensory beings, which would be a joke. Yeah? We're just going to be spirit. Yeah? doesn't work. I've, I've tried that. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you, know, you have tried appealing to your angelic nature but, and found it kind of, it has hoofs. Yeah? <laughs> so one of the big challenges to deal with the citta is to understand its relationship to the senses and the power these senses exert on us. Another aspect uh, that has to do with the citta and can trouble the citta is that it, it, um, it is affected by ignorance. You know, a few days ago we spoke about differing layers of ignorance. And um, one of the more psychologically interesting explanations of how ignorance works in the citta is looking at something Buddhist teaching calls uh, distortions. It's, um, it's a strange term. The word is called viparyasha or vipalasa, and that's a term that is used for things that have been turned onto their head. The term is used, asyati means to throw, um, and uh, something that is overthrown. So the term is used for a cart that is overthrown with its wheels upright. Um, so the viparyashas are things that are overthrowing our notion of what's real. So these, um, these vipalasas or viparyashas, they have, uh, as a condition of the citta, they make us believe that things that are impermanent are actually solid. They make us believe that things that are intrinsically laced with pain are actually giving us happiness. A viparyasha makes us seek self in what has nothing to do with self. And finally, a viparyasha may make us look for beauty in what is inherently unattractive. So under the influence of these viparyashas, our citta delivers bad results. We suddenly find ourselves obsessed with stuff that doesn't deliver. So we seek happiness, we seek solidity, we seek self and identity, and we seek beauty in things that don't deliver these. The longing is good. The Buddha is very clear we need that longing. Without that longing, we don't, we're not going to grow. It is the longing and, in fact, uh, the, the mortality and the, the frailness of our condition that makes for spiritual growth. There's this is really laconic terse text that generally is not quoted on meditation retreats. It says, you know, if three things were not monks, there would be no path, there would be no fruition, and there would be no liberation. What are these things? What are these three things? Old age, sickness, death. Yeah. What do you think? Wow. <laughs> I'm I'm glad he didn't say that on the first page. <laughs> yeah. So there's a sober and even even stark acknowledgement that without the pressure of suffering and without the longing to come out of that suffering, it is very unlikely that we are willing to take upon us the efforts needed to grow, to cultivate and to refine the citta, to make it resonant for 
the truth of uh, awakening, for the truth of liberation, for the capacity that lies dormant in that citta. So how, how does this take place? And now we're coming to the good news. Now, this takes place that the citta is capable of being discerning. Because it is fast, and because it is curious, and because it is intuitive, it can actually learn. Yeah? That's why it's better to be born as a human being, even though you have to pay taxes, than as a rabbit, where you don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> because in a rabbit, uh, you know, the chances, the, 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 the spectrum between uh, eating grass and having a good time and procreating and being eaten by something that is out there and faster than you to get you is very small. Yeah? For human beings, that spectrum to contemplate is much bigger. So it is considered a better, a better option to be a human being, even though you have to work, pay taxes, and, you know, it's complicated, as we know. So this is the good place. If you want the Buddhist take on this, then the Buddhist take is this is the privileged position. It's not the best position, but it's privileged precisely because it's not the best position. If you were born in a deva realm, you would, you would live very long, you would live very happily, and you would forget that this is going to change. The problem with the devas, according to Buddha's Buddhist cosmology, is that they forget change. Yeah. So the Buddha turns up in their realm and strums the lute of impermanence to them. And the devas will know, you know, one day your lotus is wilting and your sweat is appearing under your armpit and your, the hue of your mandorla is fading and then the other devas know this one will, this one will go down a, f a floor. Yeah? <laughs> so this is the good realm. This is the good movie. This is the best possible movie you can be in. Yeah? Because here the chances to growth, to have enough stimulus, enough inspiration, and also enough pressure to, to do the necessary work to wake up and bring your citta to the fullness, to its abundance. So it's no secret how, to do, how, you know, how Buddhist teaching conceives that. It's, it's, the, it's the path, and that path is an eightfold path, which um, you know, has different names, in fact. There's this beautiful story about the middle path, but actually there are many middle paths, to be honest with you. One is a middle path between um, sensory indulgence and self-mortification, that's, that's maybe the most famous middle path. Uh, one is a middle path between uh, the, the ascetic lifestyle of maybe saying a Jain ascetic and the the Brahminical householder lifestyle of seeking abundance, you know, that's the sort of social historical middle path when the Buddha uh, basically created the conditions for his monastic community, where voluntary simplicity is big, but there isn't actually any overt mortification or any overt asceticism in there. There is a middle path, and this is maybe the most overlooked and maybe the most important middle path in my books, is it's the middle path between things that just are and things that are not. Yeah. In other words, the materialism that claims basically after death everything is over, uh, or eternalism that says, you know, you have a soul and that soul will continue to live irrespective of your body dying. So between these two positions, the Buddha ingeniously uh, taught a path of becoming. And in the process of becoming, you avoid the extremes of essentialism. In other words, you, you claim that things in yourself are eternal. Or you uh, avoid the path of annihilism, which means generally is a form of materialism which says after death everything is over, everything is gone, and nothing is really continuing. And his in ingenuity consists of doing justice to acknowledge that things are actually impermanent and ceasing. At the same time, he doesn't deny that something is there that takes place. Yeah? So he comes up with his teaching on dependent arising, which uh, most importantly applies to how the citta 
functions. So, in other words, how moments of consciousness fuel future moments of consciousness. It's not about what's happening after your physical death, it's what's happening from one mind moment to the next mind moment that is the most powerful message of this teaching. Yeah? So he doesn't deny process, he doesn't deny existence, and yet he does neither take a position of, it, of it, eternal soul or an eternal body or an eternal mind or a, a, an eternal cosmic God, nor does he fall into the materialist trap and saying, well, um, you know, there's just basically elements and these elements are going to fall apart and when the elements fall apart, you fall apart. So he has this uh, ingenious teaching of doing justice to a process of becoming that also enables learning, yeah? that enables uh, the foundation of, for an ethical life, and that enables, finally, liberation. Yeah? That means when we learn, when we grow, we can understand how to become free and happy. So a very, very ingenious teaching, which is, uh, again, one of the middle paths. Maybe the fourth middle path, applicable also to the citta, is uh, the middle path between uh, the ethical force of self-respect and the ethical force of having to, having to oblige the subculture, the peer group, the society I live in. You know, Ideally, uh, what Western teaching calls uh, the difference between ethics and morals. Yeah. Um, speaking either of conscience, yeah, what I feel as value internalized and what I have to live by, otherwise I get in really big trouble with myself, and the ethical expectations or the, mo the moral expectations of my particular society, which when I don't live up to those, you know, they will let me know, depending on where I am, you know, they will lock me up or ostracize me, chop off my hands, um, publish pub publicly shame me in some ways or give me fines or so. Ideally, those two things would overlap. Yeah? My personal e ethical conscience would be con totally congruent with what my society expects I embody as ethical behavior. Practically, they never do. If a Kinjano late at night, doesn't stop at red lights because there aren't any cars anymore as he drives with his bicycle, then he finds, according to his personal conscience, this is absolutely doable. Yeah? But if he's getting caught with that, then he may pay a fine because the, the legal code that he is surrounded by and that is established in his society doesn't tolerate even bicyclists, even if there are no other cars, to drive over red lights. Yeah? That's a very simple example. So the citta is holding, has to hold the middle path in this area between personal self-responsibility and the ethical mores of a society that surrounds us. So there are many middle paths the good citta has to tread. The citta is capable of empathy. You know, that is maybe one of the most powerful growth factors in human evolution. We weren't actually that good when the race got going, we were a little late in the game. You know, there were things that could swim faster, jump higher, had bigger jaws than us. We were pretty late in the game. And what made us successful, if, if you want to think we're successful, just because we're many, what made us successful was that we teamed up, you know. We're actually quite brutal people. If you look at the history of um, human, of evolution, you see, where, where humanoids turned up very shortly after the megafauna, the big animals disappeared. It's disasters. You, you can, it's, you know, it's really shocking to see how quickly that has taken place. When you trace back where human people appeared, you know exactly when they were in Australia, you know where, exactly when they came to certain islands in the Caribbean, you know exactly when they turned up on, on distant archipelagos, and very shortly after, generally within less than a thousand years, the big animals had gone. Guess what happened? Yeah. Some mammal, higher vertebrate, unfettered, with a lot of empathy for his fellow human beings, and not a lot of empathy for big animals, 
basically ate them, yeah, chased them. So we're pretty good at killing bigger things. We're even good at killing ourselves, to be honest, but I am moderately hopeful that this is improving. Yeah? I'm in Steven Pinker's camp. I think we've, we're, we're becoming more tame. It's still not really impressive. The record is still not really great, but it's getting better. And I'm, I'm moderately hopeful that we continue that tack. How do we do this? We do it with empathy. Empathy made it possible that we learn. Empathy made it possible that we begin to look after the elders in our community. That in turn made it possible that we now not just had one generation of people to teach our children, we had two generations because we fed our grandparents even though they hunt and didn't hunt anymore. So, you know, there's great advantages in, in terms of not just kindness, but actually kindness pays off in many, many big ways. Not just for killing big animals, but also for learning, for becoming smarter, for handing down information and knowledge to our children, to our subsequent generations. So we're really good at this. And that's, I think, why we, you know, the planet is teeming with us. So empathy uh, has huge dimensions. In Buddhist teaching, uh, universal empathy basically comes in four tones. Friendliness is one of them, compassion is one of them, joy, sympathetic, resonance and joy is one of them, and obviously equanimity is one of them. These things are what cultivate the citta in most powerful ways, because um, as you have understood by now, you know what makes the citta most alive and what brings about most learning has to do with the relational nature of the citta. The citta or more precisely some of its functions, keep relating. Relating to things, relating to people, relating to the personal experience. So we keep being in relationship. And that capacity to attune, that capacity to, to resonate, that capacity, capacity to empathize makes us bigger than just one little unit with two legs and two arms operating in its way yeah so we kind of we resonate we all resonate not just with each other in a room but we resonate with you know we can read Marco Aurelius and see that you know what he felt you know, when he wrote his Greek diaries while he was chasing Germans up there in the Danube region uh, sick of his job uh, pond pondering life and death matters um, uh, towards the tail end of the Roman Empire you know you can you can read that today, and I can sort of sympathize with the man. There he was, you know, at the top of the feeding line, um, not believing in his job anymore, <laughs> getting older, knowing that he, however successful he was going to be, the empire in whose service he was doing his work was doomed anyway. <laughs> you know? so sometimes we can feel that way, isn't it? We can empathize with that, yeah. And this is, this is marvelous. That's, cap that's, that's possible because the citta has found ways to communicate over time, over place, over... We can connect beyond our individual immediate experience. Yeah. That's an incredible gift. And the Buddha has somehow understood that if we cultivate functions of the citta that connect us in this way, then the experience of others becomes accessible to us. We are not limited to our own little six senses, to our own little worlds. We can actually be touched by the lives, by the honest testimony of other beings in other times, in other places. It's an immense amount. And we can do this because we empathize. We can cognitively empathize and we can affectively empathize. All it takes is a little learning, a little reading, and off we go. You know, we have an immense amount of testimonies of how human beings have lived and struggled, and that helps us. That helps me quite directly. I find solace, I find inspiration, I find comfort, I find ideas, I find courage in the testimonies of other human beings. Not just of the ones I happen to be living with, but also of the ones that have handed me down Pali texts, yeah, 
or that have handed me down how they coped with the job of hunting Germans and trying to fortify an empire that was doomed anyway. You know, and I can learn something of this. I can, I can find myself validated in my own struggles when I recognize this human being has honestly spoken about his or her truth. And I am touched by this. I resonate with this. This capacity to resonate has made us grow together. It has made civilization possible. The Buddha was very much in favor of that and he thought this was our greatest strength. If I look <laughs> how much effort he put into looking after his monastic communities, you know, it's 45 years of his life, uh, how he helped create these social organisms which were totally countercultural in his days. You know, they were not really popular. Nowadays it looks like they were very popular, but the truth is if you actually look closely, they weren't popular. They were really countercultural. The idea of creating a female monastic order can't have been a popular idea in his heyday. You know? He was blamed for that, very much so, and he did it anyway. So he invested a lot of thought, a lot of care, a lot of time in cultivating that particularly monks and nuns would look after each other and would look create relationships amongst each other to grow. In fact, that's why you are sitting here, because this has happened for many, many centuries. Even though you may never uh, meet many of them, the truth is we're all sitting here because for centuries people have handed down and teachings have organized, built, lived, become monks and nuns and have practiced in that way. And that has been possible because the Buddha has had a vision of how uh, a non-family organism could help each other grow. Grow, create cultivation areas for this chitta. So there's no secret in there that you know we like mindfulness, that we like stillness, that we like brahma-viharas. We've spoken about these things. The, the power of the mind that is stilled, that is lucid, that is intuitive, that is unified, are sung many, many praises in the Pali texts. Many, many praises. Yeah. Both the longing for freedom, the, the challenges for, uh, for this mind, for this chitta to stop playing with the things that are nice but are not actually liberating and redirecting that longing away from things that can never fulfill that longing to things that could fulfill that longing if we took them up uh, is, is amply testified, particularly in the songs of the elders and the songs of the, the, the male and female elders uh, are quite uh, amazing testimonies. If you ever want to read how individual people have experienced their practice and their breakthroughs, this would be texts to read. Yeah. Poems of the elders and poems of the female elders. So the chitta is capable by discerning the characteristic characteristics of our, of our experience is able to cultivate wisdom. Now this is a fascinating turn in Buddhist teaching. Rather than saying um, you know, this is a grim world, things are bad here, uh, but if you do the right things, you go to a place where things are much better, and there all will be well. well he said, actually, no. Um, yes, things are rather mixed here. Um, you get delights and you get hurt. Um, but if you actually dis learn to discern what's happening in different ways, if you turn your capacity to attend, to be mindful and to comprehend what takes place in your own experience, you'll find thereby the key how to liberate and waken the power of your mind. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? You would expect somebody making an assessment, this is a world, a veil of tears, um, even if you get what you want, you don't 
you will not turn out as happy as you thought you would be after getting what you want. And the best you can do after getting what you wanted and finding out you're not as happy, keep doing that and just live with 80%. Yeah? He didn't say that. He said, yes, obviously you can do this. This is definitely how it works. Uh, and even those 80%, you know, you'll end up with the law of diminishing returns. Those, you, will get, you will get 80%, but they will not taste like 80%. They will taper off. They will more tail, you know, kind of 70, 60. So. And at the end, you, you will lose your teeth and, you know, even the 60 you get will not be tasting anymore. So he didn't say that. Well, he said a little bit of that, but he said... You know, by turning your mind to the very nature of your experience, you will find transcendence. You know? Not by turning to that which is outside, but by turning inward, by turning your mind with appropriate understanding and appropriate attention. You will understand the workings of your mind and by understanding the workings of your mind you will make better choices you will begin to discern those forces that are trustworthy to take you to contentment to take you to happiness to take you to uh, an expansive connectedness yeah, that make you awake it is precisely by turning into the problem rather than by turning away from the problem to a heaven or to a god or to uh, something transcendent. You will find that transcendent by turning to the imminent, by that which is here, by understanding your body, by understanding your mind, by understanding what you want, by understanding what is painful. Yeah. So, there are a few pieces in there that are not so easy. One of them, you know, in saying re, in in regard to to the to the indriyas, you you we are encouraged to practice restraint. We practice. We're encouraged to practice renunciation because only when we learn to stop the following movement will we actually begin to acknowledge the power that is pushing. And renunciation is something we all do. Let's be clear. Um, Heidegger had it very neat. He said very uh, tersely, uh, the act of renunciation doesn't take away. The act of renunciation gives. It gives of the inexhaustible strength of the singular. Renunciation doesn't take away. Renunciation gives. It gives of the inexhaustible strength of the singular. Uh, Think of this, everything in your life in which you had some success in, you will have had to sacrifice things. You will have had to renounce something. You all renounced a lot of things for you to come here. You know? The beach holiday, the fishing trip, the family do. I'm sure you have games here you've missed out while you're here. You know? You've given up quite a few things to be here some renunciation was needed. You know, every choice for something needs to be defended by a hundred no's. Yeah. If you don't if you're not willing to say many, many no's to fortify one single yes, you know, that yes doesn't value. That yes hasn't much value. Yeah. So we all need to renounce things in favor of other things. Quite dramatically, this is the case with um, with attention. You know, William James already said this. You know, we all know what attention is. It means our um, voluntary uh, decision to pay attention to one thing and move attention away from other things. You know? So to focus, in other words. So this is not an easy thing to do because it feels like we're charged for something and we don't yet know what we gain by thereby. So generally, we need to be a little bit encouraged to do this. Uh, we need some inspiration for this. We need some support in this. Um, there are other things we need to learn to discern. And sometimes that discernment goes against the grain of what we would like. You know, if things go bad and we suffer, we generally just want it to stop. 
and we hope that others don't notice because it's embarrassing to suffer. To be asked to actually find out how we suffer and how it comes that we suffer is a real, it's, it's a real task. Yeah? So most of the time when something hurts, the, the, the first inclination is moving away with our attention. I want this to stop. I don't want to have anything to do with it because I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm not actually finding out what brought it about, how it is connected to my behavior. Yeah. So this is totally counterintuitive. Yeah. Meditation, as simple as it sounds, is totally counterintuitive because it asks from us that we move away from involuntary attentional patterning, which basically says, if it's nice, I want more of it. If it's not nice, don't bother me with it. And that is a really radical deviation, counterintuitive deviation to cultivate attention irrespective of nice or not nice. Cultivate attention because it happens rather than because it promises to be giving me good feelings. Yeah. That's a difficult step. You're all doing this difficult step. I'd like to end with a little image which I actually should have put at the beginning, but so be it. Um, it's a text, I don't have it with me, but I will see whether I can string it together. It's in the collected sayings about Satipatthana teaching, the establishments of mindfulness. It's the Sutta of the cook. Uh, there is an, there's an analogy between two cooks, a good one and a bad one, and two meditators. So, the bad cook and the good cook, surprise, surprise, are both cooking with great ingredients. They're both excellent cooks, you know, at a first glance. But the bad cook doesn't pay attention whether his king eats what he cooks. He doesn't pay attention in what sequence the king eats what he cooks. He doesn't pay attention whether the king praises what he cooks and what he leaves aside. So despite his effort, despite the good ingredients, he doesn't actually take into account where this good food lands and how it is taken up by the king, his employer. And consequently, he is not being given rewards. He's not promoted. Yeah? He doesn't receive gifts, so the sutta tells us. Now, the equivalent bad meditator is actually a good meditator. He's effortful. He does satipatthana practice. He takes up you know, the body as an object of contemplation, feeling tone, the mind states and the mind objects. But he doesn't pay attention to the sign of his or her own mind. Yeah? The nimitta of his or her own mind. In other words, the, the bad meditator pecks away at an exercise without actually paying attention to how his or her mind responds. The good cook pays attention to what his king eats, in what sequence he eats, what he leaves aside, of what he eats much, and what, what, what he praises. Yeah? The good meditator does exactly the same exercises as the bad meditators, but he actually, or she actually, looks what's happening in the mind after doing these exercises. In other words, the good cook and the good meditator both are willing to engage in a relationship one with his king and employer, and the other one with her mind, yeah? her chitta. So I think this is an interesting image, isn't it? The key piece here is that we're willing to relate to that mind and find out where and how lands what we're doing. And if what is happening is not um, immediately responsive, responded to, then Obviously, we need to do something else. In other words, we are encouraged to establish such an intelligent relationship to our own mind. With the help of discernment, with the help of gentleness of these Brahma-viharas, with the help of uh, what Buddhist teaching calls yoni-somanasikara, wise investigation, yeah? appropriate, calibrated, attuned forms of attention. And then, you know, if all goes well, we end up uh, with one little verse in the Mangala Sutta. Some of you may know it. Um, 
Puta Saloka Dame Jita Yasana Kampatiya Sokang Virachankemangeta Mangalamutamang. The mind, when touched by the worldly the worldly winds, remains unshakable. One's heart does not waver. It is sorrowless, it is unblemished and secure. This is the highest blessing. So, take uh, of this what is useful and uh, let us be quiet for a minute and then we have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.